You're listening to another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. It's March 2023, and it's National Athletic Training Month again. We are in year three of doing a special episode highlighting athletic trainers. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by three athletic trainers who knew me at the very start of my career during my fellowship training at Vanderbilt. So today is the Vanderbilt edition of our athletic training episode. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I have three guests on the podcast today. Tom Bossung, known to most of us as Boz, started his career as a graduate assistant athletic trainer at Vanderbilt in 1990. He earned his master's degree in health promotions and exercise science there in 1992. He served as the head athletic trainer for two years at Tennessee State University and then returned to Vanderbilt in 1995, becoming head athletic trainer for the Commodores in 1999. He was promoted to the role of assistant athletic director of sports medicine in 2014 and in 2021 was promoted to director of athletic training services. Chris Ficken is the current clinic manager for Orthopedic Associates of Wausau and the clinic director for Pro Physical Therapy and Hand Center of Wausau and Weston in central Wisconsin. She served as an athletic trainer in Division I athletics for 15 years at Vanderbilt University, Stanford University, and the University of South Carolina. She served as the director of sports medicine services and was the head athletic trainer at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point for four years and has had various administrative roles in outpatient medical clinics. Mike Meyer obtained his undergraduate degree from Waynesburg University in sports medicine and athletic training, followed by his graduate degree in athletic training at Ohio University. He served as an assistant athletic trainer at Bloomsburg University and then moved to Vanderbilt University as an assistant athletic trainer, primarily working with men's basketball. He then accepted a faculty position in the Department of Health Sciences at California University in Pennsylvania. He earned a PhD in Administration and Leadership Studies in 2012 and now is in a management position focused on industrial health and wellness in Minneapolis. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, it's good having you all on. We were having some technical difficulties on our end, so we were able to see each other briefly. And then, well, at least two out of the three of you I could see. So it's good to be able to get you guys all together again. It's been a while, I know, since most of us have, have chatted with each other and seen each other. I, at first, I just wanted to publicly say on, on the podcast episode here that, as I have on social media, that, and since it is National Athletic Training Month, I'm just extremely humbled and flattered that I was honored to be selected by the National Athletic Trainers Association as an honorary member this year. It's looking back at those who have been previously selected. There really aren't too many of us on that list who are part of that from primary care sports medicine. And there are a lot of people who do what I do that I know that value role of the athletic trainer and are big advocates for athletic trainers as I am. Being singled out and the only recipient this year of that award was, was truly special to me. So just that's my public podcast. Thank you to National Athletic Training Association for uh, that honor. All three of you, you've had somewhat different tracks in your career. Since I left Vanderbilt after my fellowship ended in 2004, crazy it's been that long now. I know Boz is still there. Chris sort of followed me to for a little while. Mike left the United States actually for a while. Why don't each of you go through your life as an athletic trainer and what you're up to these days? And Mike, you can go first. Yeah, excellent. Started my professional career at small college in Pennsylvania, and it was a one-year temporary position. And shortly after that, I uh, had an opportunity to get the position at Vanderbilt. It's kind of a funny story, really. 
I was hired to, to come on as the athletic trainer with men's soccer team. So uh, it was it was sort of mid-academic year in February. So I was very fortunate to find the position at that time of year because most of these positions are, are, are filled. But but then uh, as I'm there for a month or two, I remember this conversation with Boz. He says, <laughs> so what do you think about maybe moving into men's basketball? And I don't know if he if he recalls the look on my face, but here I was, I think 26 or 27 years old, moving into the SEC. And I, I think I probably was the youngest athletic trainer at, at that point. But yep. uh, remember that, boss? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting transition and one that really moved me along in my professional career, though. I think it was it was a, a great opportunity to move in. I had a, a fantastic time, had a lot of great experiences there, learned a lot and was really able to contribute to a lot of local and national committees and so forth. And from there, I had an opportunity then in 2000, 2007 to pursue uh, an academic career on faculty at uh, California University of Pennsylvania, which is uh, south of Pittsburgh, closer to, to back home for me. So uh, while I was there, I worked on my uh, my PhD and I earned that uh, in 2012. And I taught there for just over 10 years in the undergraduate and graduate athletic training education programs. Our department also housed uh, a lot of other health sciences. Uh, so I would jump on any of those courses I could just for the opportunity and some of those were industrial health and wellness. So I was there for, like I said, just over 10 years, had an opportunity then to transition into more of an industrial setting. And uh, that was our move to Canada, back to uh, in-laws and family there. And then I was transferred uh, to my current position down here in Minneapolis. So we're back in the state, stateside and working more of an industrial setting. How about you, Chris? Went to grad school at Vanderbilt, um, which uh, again, just was just a really amazing opportunity for me. And after that, I took my first position at University of South Carolina for two years and then transferred out to Stanford University. I was there for three years and then had a call to come back to Vanderbilt and uh, was there another eight years. Just had really great experiences at at all those, well, SEC and then Pac-10 schools and amazing opportunities with who I worked with and also the student athletes. After that, uh, I met my husband and knew I would be moving to St. Louis and really kind of followed you, Mark, to Washington University of St. Louis. And uh, while at Vanderbilt, I had taken on some additional responsibilities within the medical center. That's when I really left traditional athletic training and went into more of an administrative role in an outpatient clinical setting. There three years, and then we moved to Wisconsin. Since moving back to Wisconsin, I've had a few different roles. I did go back to athletic training, was the director of sports medicine services at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. And then um, after that, uh, I had to, I left that position really because I was really not seeing my three children grow up in the sports world and they were getting older and uh, becoming really part of a pretty intense competitive soccer career. And so I went back into administration and now work with outpatient orthopedics, and then I'm the director of two physical therapy clinics. And how about you, Baz? Well, shoot, compared to Mike and Chris, <clears throat> my career is kind of boring. <laughs> it's uh, So like Chris, Chris and I started and went through grad school at Vanderbilt together. After grad school, I stayed in Nashville and worked at a 
sports medicine clinic and did high school outreach for one year. And then I moved over to Tennessee State University, which is also right here in Nashville from 1993 to 95. And in the summer of 95, the men's basketball position opened up at Vanderbilt. And I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to come back to Vanderbilt, where I've been ever since. So uh, from 1995 to 1999, I worked men's basketball, women's tennis, a couple other sports, primarily men's basketball. And then in the spring, January of 1999, our head athletic trainer left to become the head athletic trainer for the Seattle Seahawks. And... I was promoted up to the head head athletic trainer role at that time and served as the head athletic trainer working with football here as well as overseeing the staff up until like two years ago. So January of 21, 2021, I was promoted into a position as the director of athletic training services, which meant that I was no longer directly over football we hired a head a head football athletic trainer and and now i kind of oversee the entire staff and hopefully i'm doing a better job of that when i like i was supposed to be doing all those other years but football (laughs) kind of took my priorities away a little bit came to nashville in 1990 and have been here ever since but had like four different jobs at three different places so it's a good uh, good example of the different areas, obviously, for the, the three that we have on the podcast today of areas that people have done, you know, obviously exclusively athletic training, industrial and athletic training for a while there. And then the administrative side of uh, other other areas that athletic trainers have served roles, work with their profession. But I'd like to talk some stories uh, over your careers. And, and this can be stories of just in general patient experiences, uh, obviously being HIPAA mindful. Or just in general, just something that you found over your career that was extremely rewarding. And then we'll follow after that with something that was a challenge. But we'll start with each of you with something rewarding. And I'll I'll come right back to you, Boz, as far as something you found rewarding. I think for me, one of the most rewarding things that I've ever experienced is, and it's happened several times, and I think all of us have probably had this happen uh, in our careers, but like when players come back and say thank you either after they've graduated or maybe they've they've gone on to their professional career whether it's in the sport they play or not but i'll never forget there was a kid from memphis that that was a pretty decent football player while he was here was kind of a a pain in the butt and didn't always appreciate what you were trying to do for him and didn't always appreciate the hard work he had to go through and rehab and, and that sort of thing. And so he, mm-hmm. he went on to play professional football about a couple different teams in the NFL and what didn't last real long, but he came back in one year for homecoming and he comes to my office and I'm sitting there and he goes, boss, I got to tell you something. And I thought, you know, he and I didn't have a great relationship when he was there, but, but it was, you know, it was good. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, tumultuous or anything and he's like i just want to tell you that i so underappreciated how good we had it here when i was here <laughs> and i was mm-hmm. and, and so that, it, that just kind of you know makes you feel good inside and, and we laughed about it and i'm like yeah that, you could say that about a lot of things you don't appreciate it till you don't have it anymore and he's like 
shoot in the league. We're not even allowed to go in the training room. <laughs> and, and here we could come in and get in the tubs or whatever. And, um, and, and I'm like, well, I, I appreciate you coming back and sharing that. So, but I think, I think, you know, hearing those, those players that, that come back and say how much they appreciate you and, and what you did to help them in their career, whether, whether they went on to professional careers or not, sometimes they just go on and become husbands and fathers and, and wives and, and mothers too. And so, yeah, I think that to me is probably the most rewarding thing. Mike, how about you? Yeah, I have to echo Boz's sort of the tail end there whenever he, you know, he mentioned the athletes uh, or athlete that, that uh, said he, he, he didn't realize how good he had it. Uh, but I, I take that from a little d- different perspective. The most rewarding part for me was how good I really had it there with the resources we had and the ability to provide really what I consider top-notch care to our athletes. And leaving there to, to pursue what I what I wanted to do in education, once I, once I left, I realized, wow, the resources that, that we had there at Vanderbilt and, and the, the physicians, equipment, and, and just really the all-around healthcare from a lot of different perspectives was most rewarding for my career. And I have to say, I did miss that whenever I, I went on because it's not like that in a lot of different areas. You just don't have those resources. Of course, working men's basketball for me was, uh, was the highlight of my career. As a matter of fact, whenever I, I left Vandy, one of my key hopes was that I would stay with men's basketball. Unfortunately, I was able to do that whenever I went to uh, California University, Pennsylvania. I was able to continue my clinical experiences there. So just really, really appreciated those times. And, and, and you know, I was thinking about this, you know, what are we going to get into? What are we going to talk about? We, we've got a lot of stories. And, and one of the one of my favorites was how we would come together in Boz's office and we would hash things out sometimes. And you know, and, and sometimes we didn't always agree. And and what I appreciated most was we could put it all on a table and and then it was a matter of, okay, we're done here. We did what we needed to do. We're moving forward. Where are we going for lunch? <laughs> and, you know, we were all able just to, to, to put everything on a table to hear each other. And the decision was made at the end as to best, best route to take. And we respected that. And then it was camaraderie after that. And let's just move forward. And I really appreciated uh, those moments too, whenever we could just uh, have that voice and be able to do that. So some of them were, were quite interesting and, and really just it, it's the process and it's the fun of what it is that, that, that we were able to do. And I really grew a lot in those four, a little over four years I was there. How about you, Chris? I think too, for me, the most rewarding part of uh, my career really has just been the people from my peers to the coaches that I worked with, certainly the medical field, the doctors, and really the student-athletes. And just continuing to build the the relationship with the student-athletes over time. And hopefully, you know, none of them got hurt or were sick. You know, sometimes I always say that athletic training sometimes, especially maybe at the college level and, and maybe the high school too, but sometimes it's 85% counseling and 50% uh, rehab and, you know, really just being there for the student athletes to help them grow at a time that can be difficult, leaving their families for the first time, being away from home and 
helping them walk through life and navigate uh, different parts of of life. And that's just really rewarding. And I think now too, um, continuing that relationship with a lot of the student athletes that I worked with, now they're calling me on the phone and, and asking me sometimes still about themselves, but sometimes they're like, hey, you know, my child has this, what should I do? Um, so that, you know, that's kind of neat, just that the longevity of a relationship. Sure. I think the other thing is to be, you know, on a very, I don't know what level, but, you know, I've, I loved the jobs that I had in the sense of traveling, really traveled around the United States to eight different countries around the world. And, and that just really broadened my horizon to who I was and to what the world is. I think athletics, you know, certainly gives student athletes amazing opportunities, but I think it really gives the athletic trainers and the support staff some pretty incredible opportunities as well. And really, you know, kind of changing our perspective on the world and who we are and also seeing healthcare around the world and, you know, what things are, how things work. And uh, when you're traveling to Europe or doing a medical mission with student athletes and doctors down to South America and, I just had so many amazing opportunities that I always tell my husband, you know, I really kind of live sometimes in it. It wasn't uh, the real world. And now we live in the real world (laughs) up here in Wisconsin. And I had to pay for my own hotels when we travel now. Um, Remember uh, when. Yeah. Yeah. It's the people. And the other part that I think is so rewarding is that the parents and the families I continue to keep relationships with some of those people and to have those families come up and say, thank you so much for what you've done to my son or daughter. I I had an experience here at division three where this kid was sick. I knew there was something not right. I worked with our team physician. I just kept going back and I'm like, there's something wrong. We have to keep at this. And after four different types of specialties found out where he has a rare genetic disorder Hmm. And really the impact that that made on his family to say, thank you for your perseverance and knowing that something wasn't right. And, you know, those are the kind of things that just impact who I am and just really have valued this experience in my career. So we get to flip that around now, Chris, and we've talked about the positives. So what what about a significant challenge that each of you have faced and over the years? And again, some, something with the world of athletic training or your, your job experiences, obviously future in life, even personal stuff as far as kind of what you've gone through and, and then how you respond to that. Sounds like a, a job interview that we're doing here with these questions, but these have been interesting questions that we've had for each of our guests over the last few years. So I'll start with you, Chris. Oh, goodness, there's certainly been challenges. Uh, You know, I'll be honest, just sometimes the physicality of the job and that I worked with uh, Division I college basketball for a lot of my career. And fortunately, I was with teams that went very far into the NCAA tournament many times to the Final Four. And so you're working seven straight months, really, with very, very little break or maybe a half a day off a week. And so sometimes you're just exhausted um, at at the end of a season. But then, you know, you get re-energized and get ready for that next season. I think the other thing, too, for me, once I moved to Wisconsin, had children, again, working. I, I was working at Division Three NCAA, but it was really run like a Division One program. We traveled with everything, with all the teams. And I wasn't seeing my own kids sometimes play their sports. And at that point in my career, I just knew I had to to leave. And I was taking care of everyone else's children, sometimes at the expense of my own. Mm-hmm. 
And so I decided to leave. But again, I had developed relationships with team physicians in different clinics around the, our community and had the opportunity to then go work in an administrative role where it was really more Monday through Friday and uh, gave me that that uh, life balance that I could see my own children. Another maybe challenge sometimes is working in the administrative role and working with managing a bunch of physician groups. Again, really rewarding at times, it's sometimes challenging um, when things don't go right <laughs> from a, a clinical or medical perspective. The changes in healthcare have certainly been frustrating for everybody, including physicians, from as simple as, you know, physicians spending more time now on their, you know, documenting and managing government regulations and taking care of the patients. And so I think sometimes just the change in healthcare has been frustrating. You know, I, I think we're going to continue to see some of that. Yeah, I agree. How about you, Boz? Yeah, just to piggyback Chris's last point there, epic is just another four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> and also Chris made a really good point. You'll hear athletic trainers a lot of times talk about, you know, the time that they spend away from their families and, and on a, from a personal perspective, that's probably the one of the biggest challenges and that I've, that I faced. And, and, and again, I was, I was blessed to have a beautiful and wonderful wife, Dee Dee, who, who made sure our kids had a great, experience growing up and going to, you know, playing sports. And, and a lot of times my role kept me from going to their game. So that was, that was challenging. And, and you, you try to do the best you can to get to as many as you can and uh, whatnot, but it was, it was challenging on a professional level. I remember one of the, one of the biggest challenges I, I ever had was when up until this point in 2002, when we changed football coaches and the new football coach that was coming in was told that he could bring his athletic trainer with him without having a conversation with me or Dr. Spindler or anybody, you know, it, it was kind of like one of those things, well, how are you going to handle it? And, and what are you going to do about it? And I remember having a lot of conversations with Kurt about, you know, if I'm not good enough for him, then do I want to just move to another sport or something like that? And I said, you know, no, I'm going to, you know, it was, it was a good, it, it ended up being a great situation because it forced me to kind of button up the bootstraps and, and I just kind of made a determination, look, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to do, I'm going to prove to this guy that I'm, I'm worthy of being his athletic trainer. And, and so we went through spring ball and, and the week after spring ball was over, I went up to his office and I said, you know, hey, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how it went during spring ball. What'd you like? What didn't you like? What what can we do better? And he was like, you guys were great. He says, I don't want to change anything as far as sports medicine goes. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that was good to hear. And that was like in April. And in June, he came back down to my office and he said, now listen, don't get all excited and don't get all riled up, but I want to hire my other athletic trainer, but he's not going to do sports medicine. He's not going to do athletic training. He's going to be our director of operations. He said he's smart. He's organized. I want him to handle like recruiting and travel and, and all that. And nine years later, we worked side by side together and have a lasting great relationship. So it turned out great, but there for a few months, I was walking around on eggshells and nervous and had a knot in my stomach about, you know, what am I doing <laughs> wrong? And, 
and everything. So that that can always be challenging when you you know you think your job's on the line and and whatnot. But you know it, it worked out okay for me. <laughs> that was Coach Bobby Johnson, correct? It was. Yep. Yeah, the dead ringer for Steve Martin. If you haven't looked up his picture, that's right. He is. He looked exactly like Steve Martin. Yep. And I will. I will give my my favorite game I have ever covered. And again, this was as a fellow. Was at Vanderbilt. It was my first year there. That uh, two thousand two, two thousand three year, where we. I think it was. The, there was a thirteen game SEC losing streak, and we beat, I believe, Kentucky at home. Yeah, and we're. <laughs> All the fans stormed the field and uh, they took the goalpost down and basically marched all the way down into downtown Nashville. But the coolest thing I, I remember about that is that the school then cut up parts of the, the goalpost and gave it to the students who were there at the stadium, yeah. which obviously they could have gone a whole different direction with it. But I thought that was probably one of the coolest things. But that was that was a super fun experience, even though that, you know, football at that time, even though we had Jay Cutler, mm-hmm. wasn't the most positive experience for uh, wins. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least, but I'll, I'll I'll never forget that game. That was something else. Trust me. I've had too many of those losing streaks. I know you have. (laughs) I know you have. I know you have. (laughs) See, and I got to carry that through with me to covering the, uh, being one of the docs for the St. Louis Rams. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and having a stretch where I think we were, uh, we had in the total of a three season span, five wins. So yeah, that was uh, a a fun stretch of my, my uh, covering career too. How about you, Mike? Well, I, I don't know that I can say it as good as Chris and Vaz, but but I certainly have felt some of those same pains and, and, and growing pains and challenges from a personal standpoint through even just uh, interactions uh, with the team. But to dive in a little bit more, you know, I, I'm sitting here just thinking of, uh, of, of family and you know, what, what did I do? I was... I, I was coming in as men's soccer athletic trainer in February. I could ease into this job, get my feet in, get going. And next thing I know is I was getting married in 2000, the same year that we moved there. And I was going to Spain because I just got assigned to men's basketball. And about two or three weeks after my honeymoon, I was jumping on a plane to go back to Spain for 10 days. So, yeah, the family, the, the, the family dynamic really, it developed while I was at, at Vanderbilt. And, and I, I kind of want to rewind a little bit. I mean, I think that was, while it was one of the most fascinating and most rewarding por- uh, parts uh, of my time there, getting married, uh, my oldest was born there. It was also probably one of the most challenging for us as well. And just because of the time away, uh, as Chris and, and Boz alluded to, my son, we moved from Nashville when he was not quite two. So he wasn't into the uh, to the sports, and I wasn't missing much of his activities. But but that eventually is what gave me some nudge and some pull. We all we all navigate through that differently, and there's not one right or one wrong way of doing it. Uh, but I was feeling that pull of okay, you know what? I, I really enjoyed coaching them in, in little league and wanted to be a little bit more uh, a part of that. And eventually, I had that opportunity to leave, but. You know, there isn't one right or wrong way. And and like Boz, I had my wife, fantastic support. But there's those challenges as newlyweds, you come in and uh, you're facing, uh, I was gone quite a bit, probably more expected, more than expected as if I was working with uh, soccer. Um, Boz, you remember holding my son 
yep. at Vandy uh, basketball games in the front row, and he would just go to sleep. He probably yep. was only about 10, 11 months old. You and your wife, Dee Dee. So, yes, I also have to say I am. we were blessed to have Boz and his beautiful wife, Dee Dee, there because they took Brennan in quite a few times when my wife was yep. doing her own coaching and traveling. So, we were talking about that uh, the other night. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And, and he was fantastic. Like, he was just – I guess just 10 months maybe at most at that point and he didn't care who he went with but it, it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun but those were challenges too that we, we Chris and I my wife Chris and I were were learning to navigate through this this athletic training profession she was a college athlete but you know she understood the, the commitment from an athletic standpoint but there's this side of it from an athletic training standpoint and and coming into SEC Chris you mentioned you worked division one women's basketball for most of your career touched on how demanding it is. And and that was some of the other challenge uh, that I faced as well. To Boz's point about some of the challenges that he faced with some transition in coaching, I, I faced some transition right away as I was coming in because one of my questions to Boz was, well, what, you know, why me? Why now? What happened? And for whatever reason, I needed to move into that spot. And Coach was a very demanding coach. I know there was some conflict. He wanted it uh, the way he wanted it. And we've probably seen that in other uh, positions we've been in with other coaching staffs. Boz, you said you had a knot in your stomach. Man, let me tell you the knot I had in my stomach was if this other seasoned athletic trainer that was there is not good enough, and here I come in as a 27-year-old with really not a whole lot of experience other than my graduate work and a little bit of time uh, with another program. Wow. But in the same point, I took it as, and you told me, Boz, look, you could go at this and just completely fail at it or, or you could succeed and you have an opportunity uh, to take it either way. Kind of the rest is history. I think coach and I had a fantastic working relationship from my knowledge standpoint, he had really respected what it is that we did. And, and I really just included that staff and a lot of uh, what I could, as far as I could, the decisions we were making. So that was a bit of a challenge that first year. You know, I had a lot to, to prove, so to speak, for myself as a young professional. Uh, and then that I could do the job and to earn that respect and, and that trust. That opportunity is really what propelled me into having that confidence in myself, ultimately. So within those challenges, I think we all got better and uh, exceeded in who we were as as a, as a dad as a as a as a wife chris as a as a mom as a dad as an athletic trainer uh, there's so much growth that happened there through through those challenges we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we will continue our discussion for national athletic training month 2023 wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever it can with perpetual advertising Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact. Thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? 
you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective, on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that's truly outside the box from The Voice Box. Voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Now, back to the podcast. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about a interesting case or diagnoses. And obviously, again, being HIPAA mindful here, you know, you all had long careers in athletic training in, in one way, shape, or form. I'm sure there's many of those that you can talk about or things like that. But, but you know, maybe one. I know one that I definitely want Mike to talk about. Hopefully he will talk about because I think it's it's a good one in light of what we recently uh, saw in January in the NFL. But why don't we start with uh, with Boz? Yeah, I've I've actually thought about proposing to do a talk on things you never thought you'd have to deal with as an athletic trainer, but somehow end up in your lap. And I could I got like three or four cases where and two of them are with with athletes at, at Vanderbilt that I've worked with, and two of them are were athletes or friends, kids that, and I'm sure Chris and Mike can attest to this, that, you know, we, we have our friend groups and then our kids have friends. And when our kids' friends get hurt, those parents call us because, you know, their pediatrician told them one thing and they're like, well, what, what does this really mean? And can, would you mind looking at him and that sort of thing? But Early on in my career, I, I I still can't believe this 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 young man is still alive. But it was Bobby Johnson's first year as football coach. It was the summer of two thousand and two, and that if you remember, that was back when freshman football players reported to campus and actually practiced like three days before the varsity guys came back. And it was the day the varsity guys reported, so the freshmen had finished their third practice and, but they were moving into the dorms and like, like kids will do a bunch of them all crowded into an elevator and the elevator got stuck between the ninth and 10th floor. And so they, they used the phone to call for help and they were on their way, but it was taking too long and these guys are getting hot. So they like ogre football players, they force open the doors of the elevator and they can see the ninth floor lobby. Like the elevator was like halfway stuck open. Like there was a gap that you could jump out onto the ninth floor lobby. So this one freshman decides he's going to jump out of the elevator. Like you had to like shimmy out, like kind of swing underneath the, you know, between the floor of the elevator and the top of the doorway. And when he did so, he lost his balance and he falls backwards into the elevator shaft and falls nine floors down to the basement and lives to tell about it. (laughs) Wow. And I don't know how, and I don't know why, but he did. And he is a practicing attorney in Birmingham, Alabama to this day. Wow. That was pretty interesting and something you don't expect. I had another football player that 
ended up with a case of transverse myelitis mm-hmm. that was that was interesting because that was the one year that we practiced two weeks of spring ball before spring break and and then came back after spring break for the last two weeks and on the last day of practice it was Thursday afternoon everybody was supposed to be going to class on Friday and then leaving for spring break. He comes in after Thursday's practice. He goes, boss, my hands are numb. They're tingling. They're numb. I'm like, what do you mean they're numb? He's like, I can't. They're like, it's like they're asleep. And I'm like, okay. And I look at it. I said, did you get hit in the head? Did you get a stinger? No, nothing happened. I didn't, I didn't get hit at all today in practice. No. How long has it been going on? It just, it just started about halfway through practice, I guess. I don't know. And long story short, Dr. Kuhn came by, was there after practice. And we looked, he looked at it. He said, uh, he said, maybe we ought to get an MRI to rule out a syrinx, which I, at the time I never knew, I've never heard that term before either. Mm-hmm. So got an MRI that night. The kid was getting on a plane at like 10 o'clock the next morning. Cause he had one class, I think at eight or maybe, I don't know what he was on an early flight. And so he left town before we actually saw him and follow up with him. But the MRI did not show a syrinx. And so he went home to Florida. On That was on Friday. On Sunday, I get a call from the wide receivers coach who said, hey, have you talked to this kid? I said, no. He goes, well, he's in a hospital paralyzed. They think it's bacterial meningitis. And I'm like, oh, Lord. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, that's not good. It's, it's contagious. It's like, and I've got, and I knew this kid was around the entire team and it's spring break. And I know that I've got players all over the country. Plus I had like four players that went to Europe for spring break mm. and like eight others that went to Mexico for spring break. And I'm like, Oh my God, we just started a worldwide, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, like, well, it wasn't, it wasn't meningitis and ended up being this transverse myelitis. Long story short, he spent like 21 days in intensive care. He was nine days on a ventilator cause it was above C3 and mm. shut down his diaphragm again. Good outcome because he came back and he he survived that. He came back, took a year to recover, but ended up being a contributing factor the next three seasons. And I'll never forget when he was a freshman, he came in and he said, "Yo, man, he's like he, he was cocky, he was arrogant, he was from Florida, you know, South Florida." And I had this swagger about. Him. He's like, "Listen, man," he says, "Just so you know, I'm I'm not about to be here no four years." He said, "I'm gonna." I'm going to get my three years and I'm going to, I'm going to be out or he never, he never said, I'm going to get, be here three years. He just said, you know, we're going to go to some bowl games. I'm going to the league. Well, six years later, he graduates <laughs> and, I, and I give it, and he, he and his wife live here in town and I see him every now and then remind him like, Hey, remember when you said you weren't going to be here four years? Yeah. You were right about that. But, <laughs> so Nice. <laughs> and then one one high school kid, we were friends with good close friends of ours here. Their kids had gone through school and church with my kids. And this young lady is a Division One volleyball prospect who calls me one night and says, "Hey, I got this swelling in my thigh. Can you take a look at it?" I'm like, "Okay, that's weird, but yeah, come on." So. She came over. We looked at it. I looked at it. I'm like, all right, let's get it looked at tomorrow. We go into the training room the next day. We see Dr. Fitch. Uh, I said, I told her, I mean, she had this, like, 
it looked like somebody cut a racquetball in half and slid it under her skin in her medial thigh. I'm like, well, I don't, it, she didn't have any muscle pain, nothing mm-hmm. like that, didn't pull a muscle. And I said, let's go see Dr. Fitch. I said, I don't know what it is, but it's not normal. So we go see him and he says, yeah, I could tell by the questions he was asking that I didn't like where he was going with it. So I started getting a little nervous. So let's get an MRI. We got an MRI that night, went back to see Doc the next day. He had already made an appointment upstairs with oncology. Mm-hmm. It was a synovial sarcoma. Mm. And so that led to surgery to remove as much of it as possible with trying to get borders and, and stuff. Also required radiation and chemo again. So her volleyball career was shot, but now it became a matter of, is she going to survive and all that? And I am happy to report that she not only survived, but as of this past January of 23, she's 13 years cancer free and is the mother of three, three daughters. So those were, those are three interesting cases that, you know, you never think you're going to deal with. In, in or at least I haven't in sports medicine, but things, things like that, that come up and you, you got to kind of be aware. And, and, you know, Mike, Mike made a great point about one of the things that's been so good for me is the resources we have here at Vanderbilt and the doctors and, and everything. And, and I feel fortunate that we've been able to help those three individuals along with everybody else that we've seen over the years have good outcomes in those regards. But those are my interesting ones. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Mike? Yeah, I had a couple. Uh, uh, you know, we've I've seen uh, a lacerated spleen. A kid come in a day after uh, an event happened and couldn't sleep all night. When he laid down, his side was hurting, his left arm was hurting, his shoulder was hurting. He'd sit up; it was fine. And I have, I think this was probably within the first two weeks I was even there at Vanderbilt. And then, uh, so I did an evaluation. I was like, all right, we got to get you looked at because this doesn't seem right. And, and every time he would lay down on his back, it, it would open. But when he would sit up, it would splint itself. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if you were there at that point yet, Mark, or not, because that was early in my career. But, yeah, he ended up uh, having some surgery done and doing mm-hmm. well. And you know what? We we have seen so many other things outside of, of uh, just a, a tip, your, your quote-unquote typical injury or condition. And the one, obviously, that sticks out to me, though, was occurred March 6, 2006. It's a date that I'll never forget, but uh, we were practicing uh, at Memorial Gym in preparation for the SEC tournament, which that year of all four years I was there, and actually even prior to that, that year in particular, uh, the men's basketball tournament was being held in Nashville. And so we were basically at our home court practicing. And the day started out real, just like a typical day, guys coming in and doing typical guy stuff and getting on each other and, and just kind of really loose and uh, having a good time and, and getting prepped. And and it was no different for this particular athlete come in and, and got taped and prepped and joked around a bit and uh, out on the floor. And we were probably out there, practice started and, and probably going about 20, 25 minutes into the session. And it's right under right under where our home bench is but or would be during a game but uh, i just turned around the drill ended and i just turned around 
and I heard a collapse and then this surreal quietness. And I knew somebody hit the floor and I thought for just that split second, like the play's over. What, what are we doing? And when I turned around, it was, I had an athlete that, that had collapsed on the ground and was motionless and lifeless. And fast forwarding through that, he was ultimately diagnosed with a uh, cardiac anomaly uh, known as uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And his, he had a cardiac emergency mm -hmm. uh, right uh, on the floor. So my athlete trained student and myself, we, uh, we had to perform CPR on him. We defibrillated him and uh, had EMS uh, obviously uh, started that emergency response plan. And if, if I recall, we had a, uh, at the time, we had a faculty and staff wellness center in Memorial Gym. And there's a, a registered nurse that, that worked in there sort of part-time just uh, doing vitals and, and those sorts of things uh, as faculty would come in and whatnot. She happened to be walking up the hall and she came up into the gym as well and assisted us through that. But it was a you know, there's a, there's a lot of detail, obviously, that I'm, uh, I'm leaving out in there. But yeah, uh, given the recent events that, that we all witnessed there on the Monday Night Football game, uh, just brought back a lot of, a lot of the memories and, and, and sort of the events that unfolded. And, and we were able to convert his heart rhythm. And he was responding to us as we got him into the ambulance and up into the hospital. Uh, he spent, obviously, several days in the hospital and is, uh, to my knowledge at this point, what I know is uh, he's doing well. He was doing well, did not play for us again, but uh, graduated and went on to law school. And unfortunately, he and I kind of just lost touch with each other. But one of the most gratifying situations, one of the most, what, not one of, but it was the most scariest situation that I was in. And can't say enough about the resources and that, that I had. And, and what it did was it really changed the way we looked at emergency medicine, at least at Vanderbilt. I mentioned that, that uh, specifically that that tournament was played in Nashville for a reason. Uh, we talked about this after. If it was in Georgia, which is usually where we played those, those tournaments, we're, we're practicing at a community college somewhere or uh, a, a, even a high school gym. And I don't have the resources that, that I had right there uh, in the athletic training room and specifically the AED. We didn't carry those AEDs with us or travel uh, with those at the time. Uh, we had them down in the athletic training room. Uh, the athletic training room was locked uh, while we were on the floor. And it just really changed the way we looked at cardiac events and how we have to respond to uh, those medical emergencies. Uh, and it, it, we really changed again. I, the resources we started getting in and, and equipment we started to pack and carry with us, uh, you know, the outcome could have been very different had that tournament not been played uh, where it was played that year in Nashville. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a great story I've, I've heard and I know I've talked to you a little bit about it in the past, but I've also definitely talked about it with uh, Dr. Gregory, who's my fellowship director and still at, at Nashville or at Vanderbilt there. And yeah, it's just a amazing story about the save that happened there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, the more and more you do this, the, the more and more saves you hear about, which is again, just the testimony to right. the, the value of having that AED and then that quick response. No question about it. How about you, Chris? You know, I've had a, a, a lot of interesting cases, you know, several of them orthopedic in nature and really uh, 
like Mike said, you know, there's so many resources that we have at Division One and in the athletic training room, the medical centers that we have available. And but I've also been up here in central Wisconsin and have been working high school sports. And I was covering a rural high school football game, literally in the middle of a farm, farm country up here. And I had a C-spine injury and calling 911, you know, 911. I'm on the phone with them. I'm holding C-spine. I have no student athletic trainer with me. I'm having to direct, you know, the athletic director, the coaches, and ultimately, you know, I have a 30 minute response time and they decide that we need life flight in. So we called life flight and I had to have a helicopter land in the 50 yard line of a rural football field. Wow. And, you know, managing the field with making sure the teams are away from them in order to land a helicopter where they're playing. It's a relatively small space. And then having a, one of your high school kids loaded up and the parents, there not being able to go with them. So by how the crow flies or how the helicopter flies, it takes about 20 minutes to get to our nearest level one trauma center. And, uh, but by car, it took um, a little over an hour. So you have these parents who are, you know, obviously really struggling to see their son being life flighted away. Ultimately, he had a, a, a pretty good, we had a, a good outcome. He's walking, but just knowing that you have to know your emergency action plan, it doesn't matter where you are. And I think sometimes, you know, like Mike had said, you know, looking at how you look at cardiac events and how are you prepared, but also how do you have your emergency action plans ready for no matter where you're located, whether you're in a very rural school in the middle of Wisconsin or any other place, or in a big metropolitan area with, you know, a level one and a level two trauma center at your backyard. So I think that's really important for all athletic trainers, you know, understanding your environment and, you know, what are your resources going to be? And I guess the other um, one I had actually ended up at the with the Division three school that I worked at. I had a freshman track athlete, and one of my grad assistants was actually covering track because I was working men's basketball. Um, but I knew this kid was in. He had, it was the middle of winter or January in Wisconsin, super icy, snowy outside. They had been running outside. And he came in with a hip pain, and he said that he had run through a parking lot and hit a run into a, like a curb. And so they were treating his hip pain, wasn't getting any better and uh, saw a physician and again, treated it as a hip flexor issue. And now I'm covering a Saturday indoor track meet with, I don't know, 12 teams. So it's just, it's a packed indoor facility. And this kid comes in and said, you know, he's really having problems walking so because I couldn't leave the facility, I asked one of my students to quick run to the athletic training room, make sure he had crutches, taught him how to walk on crutches. I said, I'll see you on Monday. However, the coach called me on Sunday and I went in to see this athlete again, still not doing well, told him I would see him again on Monday and our team physician would be in that day as well. Um, however, he didn't come in. Um, and so now I didn't see him for a couple of days. The coach called me again. Thursday. And I said, I need to see him. I need one of the team or you to go get this kid out of his dorm and he has to come in. 
when this kid came into the athletic training room, he had already lost 17 pounds. He was a tall, lean athlete. He was ashen. His parents were on the way to get him. He was from about three hours away. I said, there's something wrong. We have to get him into the emergency room. The parents said, you know, we're taking him right in to where we live. I, you know, ultimately this kid was septic. He nearly died. And they believe that the route of uh, transmission was through a blood blister, a tiny, tiny blood blister on his toe. And uh, this kid was in the hospital for seven weeks. He had seven surgeries. He was out. He lost the whole semester. Ultimately, he came back and he finished his sophomore, junior and senior year running. But really to say, you know, it's just such a, you know, for athletic trainers, sometimes we think so orthopedically at times. And especially when they give you a mechanism of running into something, you know, outside and slipping and falling. So we think it's going to be automatically a hip. But the thing is that he was septic and he had a huge cavity in his hip joint that was infected and just really, really kind of strange and just a real lesson. You know, how do we continue to really watch and talk with our athletes? That's definitely a testimony also to just having experience too, because obviously, you know, all of us have been around long enough now that we've seen a lot of what all the mundane can be and and how those things typically present. And when you're starting to see something that's just outside of the norm and it just doesn't make sense, that's where that that little radar goes up for, I think, all of us. And I think that's hard, obviously, when you're first starting out because you don't have that experience for stuff. But there is also that little little intuition that just this doesn't all fit together. And, and once you develop that little, that spidey sense, so to speak, boy, can that be valuable to really taking care of an athlete. And that's just where you got, you got to be listening and, and thinking outside the box too. And, and and why someone may not be getting better. No question. Yeah. I had, you know, a couple of those. And again, I had that with my Ben's basketball player when something, same thing, night sweats, a pediatrician back home through high school said he had recurrent mono. And I'm like, this is not right. This is a healthy kid. He should not be having this type of, he would go through two sets of sheets at night and, and uh, same thing. We kept pushing and Ended up with a rare genetic disorder that predisposes them to, to a certain type of cancer. But you just, right, you you just have this feeling, you know there's something not right. But again, it's it's experience over time. Well, if you all could change something about the athletic training position, uh, profession, what would it be? And I'll start with you again, Chris. You know, I, I'm in central Wisconsin right now, and I really have to say I'm we're really, really fortunate up here. Our high schools have athletic trainers in them. They hire full-time athletic trainers. My children's high school, which was pretty big, had two full-time athletic trainers plus, plus other ones that would come in to, for other sports. But I think, you know, just the importance of having an athletic trainer at our schools across the country. I think every state, about one right now is licensed, is a licensed healthcare professional. I think California still has to get on board with that. Yeah. You know, just the importance of understanding. We hear so much on television, the NFL players, the division one basketball players or football players, but there are major things happening at smaller schools, at little school, you know, little high schools, junior highs that are life-threatening. And we need to have a respected profession and that that the school boards or the communities value that role and that they can hire a full-time athletic trainer to be in those schools. And I just think that's so critical. Another thing I think of, I just always tell, I'm working in the curriculums with athletic training. 
I really truly believe we have a broad education that is very unique and we have an opportunity to be a huge part of the medical community, not just in on the traditional fields or courts or high schools or colleges, but understanding our role within medical complexes, whether it's academic, private or corporate, being able to work as an administrator or with different specialties across the spectrum of medical. And we, we have a lot to offer that a lot of, there's a lot of other professions don't have that broad background. And um, I think curriculums to me should have more emphasis on business administration and just the business side of it, because I think that's a huge part of what our future is going to hold. How about you, Mike? I would say the access to athletic trainers. So along the lines of what Chris is talking about there, access seems to be there for, you know, our, as she said, the professional level sports, uh, division one sports, uh, division two, II, division three, down through high school, you start seeing some disconnect in terms of travel and not every sport has access. And then especially as you move down through the high schools, Coming out of academia in athletic training, one of the things that already has started to change that I would like to see continue to move forward is our own level of self-respect for what it is that we do. We were one of the one of the few, if not the only, uh, healthcare providers that really just just operated off of a four-year degree. Of course, it was rigorous. Uh, there was a lot of of clinical experience that had to go into that. We had to, to pass our, our national boards, but we were still lacking in some areas that moving forward into a master's degree only, meaning you were going to come out of school with a master's degree in athletic training and provide our athletic training students uh, a little bit more clinical time prior to just letting them go after four years. So what academics is really contributing right now into making these young professionals ready to go into the world of athletic training and having that level of self-respect and self-confidence uh, has really changed, but it needs to continue to grow and to move forward. And, and I can just remember coming out uh, after four years of undergrad and I thought I knew everything. And to this day, you learn something new every day. And that's part mm -hmm. of the experience. And wow, it was, was I clueless whenever I came out after four years and was thrown into responsibilities that really, even after a master's degree, some of those experiences and situations, wow, I look back and wonder, how did I navigate through all of that? Of course, I had great mentors. Of course, I had great uh, resources to lean into. We can, we can continue to do a better job of having some self-respect. And that includes our education level and what we're going to bring to the table and how we bring it. How about you, Boz? Yeah, I think it's a common theme. Mike and Chris both touched on on it. I, Chris, I, lo I love Chris's point about having more athletic trainers available at, at all schools of all levels, I think is, is critical. And that's, that's not, I mean that that is a common sentiment above among those of us that appreciate the value that athletic trainers provide, and and so I think you know state legislatures need to start recognizing the importance of it and start mandating, and and school corporations for that matter 
need to start recognizing the value of having an athletic trainer. And, and sadly, it's oftentimes not recognized until something bad happens, like an event like Mike had where, you know, you have a kid with a, a medical emergency and no one's there to take to take care of it or help treat them. And, and you know, you too often a, a bad outcome is it leads to changes and we should try to be making those changes to prevent those bad outcomes. And I also agree with Mike's point about the educational process. Our young professionals are coming out of school now with so many more skills and techniques learned than I ever had, that we ever had. Mike's a few years younger than Chris and I, but I, I would even say at his point where when we came out of school, we, we thought we knew what we were doing, but we didn't. And we don't have, but athletic training education now has gone beyond so much from what, what I learned in school, but I am a big proponent of experience and I think experience is your best teacher. And if there's one thing I could change, it would be to reincorporate some of that independent experience for the students while they're in school still. I think one of the best experiences I had was as a graduate assistant that my second year, I, I worked football my first, both years. And then, and then the second year, my secondary sport swimming and dive, uh, women's swimming was, was dropped by the university. So I didn't have a second sport then. So I, I asked if I could do baseball and I did baseball and that was a great experience because it put me, it forced me to have to make decisions and deal with coaches and explain to coaches why their starting pitcher wasn't able to pitch and have to listen to him complain and, and ask why not and da, 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 this and that and, and then have to answer those questions and dealing with, with parents of players and and, and whatnot. So I think there's value in that, that we've, we've gone away from a little bit. And I think that if, if we could change it, I think maintaining what they're learning, but giving them the opportunity to have that experience a little bit more would be what I would suggest or try to change. So we wrap things up with something we call the Pearl of Podcast. We usually treat it as kind of like a take-home point, but I think what's always good for this particular episode, since we have three experienced athletic trainers on the podcast, is using it as kind of some advice that you would give to a soon-to-be or just starting athletic trainer out there. So we'll start with Boz. Okay. There's two things that I always tell either students who are leaving, getting ready to go off to grad school or whatnot, or young professionals who maybe in a graduate assistant or an internship role that are trying to move on and looking for full-time employment. And that is no matter how many skills you have or whatnot, you have to have compassion and empathy for the people that you're working with. You know, Maya Angelou said, people will forget what you said and people will forget what you did, but people will always or will never forget how you, how you move in school. And so I, 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 I share that with them and tell them like, look, you can buy yourself a little bit of credibility with your athletes and your coaches just by showing how much you care. The other thing I tell them is 
don't pigeonhole yourself. <laughs> and by that, I mean, don't pigeonhole yourself by sport, by level, or geographically. A lot of young professionals, they think they know what they want to do in their lives. They think they know they want to work, I don't know, NFL football or professional basketball or or hockey or pick pick your sport. Or they want to work intercollegiate, division one, power five, pick your sport. And And I always just remind them, look, don't pigeonhole yourself to those positions because one, you may find, you know, you may get a job at a school working a sport you had no idea about. And all of a sudden you think, wow, this is pretty cool. I could, I could do this. And I like doing this. And, and now all of a sudden you're happy where you're at. A lot of people say, I want to work division one. And I can tell you a lot of kids we see today that do summer internships with us or immersion experiences during a semester and they get here and they're like, holy cow, I had no idea what this is really about. And so, you know, they see us on TV on Saturdays and Sundays and, and whatnot on the sidelines. And they think that's all it is when it's not. And, and then, you know, they realize that it, it can lead to, you know, a lot of hours and, and work behind the scenes. And then lastly, geographically, you know, I, I'm a perfect example. When I came to Vanderbilt for grad school, my wife and I came down here and we thought, okay, we're going to be in Nashville for two years. And then we'll start heading back home towards Indianapolis, Chicago, somewhere up there in the Midwest. Well, we never left and we've been in Nashville 33 years now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so those are the two things I tell people is don't pigeonhole yourself and then have compassion, have empathy. And I think you'll, you'll be able to have a great career. How about you, Chris? In working with my students that I have um, curriculum and some of my shadow students, a couple things, some of them are very similar to what Boz had said, but I'll never forget in grad school, Fred Tedeschi sat me down mm-hmm. and he said, Chris, athletic training, there's a science to it and there's an art, but the art is what's going to make you unique. It's going to make you the good athletic trainer. Yep. And I never forget that because, and I always try to tell everybody, put your unique perspective into your career. Like we're all unique. We all have gifts. We all have things that we need to work on, but really hone those gifts. And, you know, what can you give your position, your student athletes, your industrial employees, you know, whatever that looks like and honor those gifts that you have. The second thing too, kind of similar to pigeonholing, I, you know, don't expect to have your dream job in your own little neighborhood. Expand your wings, be willing to travel, move across the country. You learn so much about yourself when you're on your own and you have to make things work. I've worked all across the country, being from the upper Midwest, and now I'm back to, you know, where near where I grew up. Had the amazing experiences of travel and stretching who I was and going where I, I really had no idea. I remember my interview with Vanderbilt for grad school and he said, uh, do you know where Vanderbilt even is? And I mean, I did know it was Nashville, but uh, I didn't know anything about the state. <laughs> That's more than um, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing too, I always tell my students is, and, and I don't know, I know Mike is in more in the curriculum and teaching, but I always tell my students, don't be just solely athletic training. 
get something else with it. Because if you leave the field, you need something else to back yourself up. Like, mm, and good. I think especially right now with me being more in the medical business side of things, I truly believe athletic trainer needs training needs to do a better job with adding some business and, and healthcare administration in it. The future of med- medicine is really, really understanding the business side of it. And uh, I think you can really broaden your horizons, even if, you know, if you're going to be a head athletic trainer someday, regardless if it's a high school, if it's a uh, community college or division one, you need some business background and understanding working with, you know, your, your team physicians and maybe the, the corporate healthcare facility who's, you know, sponsoring you. And so I really think, you know, add some business to it. Otherwise, at least don't just pigeonhole yourself, just to athletic trainer, making sure you have some type of other double major with it. Mike, we'll let you finish this up. Sure. All fantastic points. And I would, I would say they're, you're asking for two, but we're giving you more than that. And rightfully so because of the experience. And, and mine would echo everything that they said. And I followed some of that, that, uh, those take home messages and advice throughout my career. But the biggest thing that I have gained through this experience is I'm going to be the athletic trainer that I decide to be. And any young professional coming into positions as intimidating as they might be, uh, as frightening as they might be, you can look at them as Boz told me, you can look at it and, and think you're going to fail, or you can take this bull by the horn, so to speak, and make it yours. You're not who your predecessor was. Although I've had a lot of great mentors, I really developed my own approach to who I was as an athletic trainer based on all of the wonderful mentors that I've had and experiences I had, but also <laughs> through some of those not so good experiences as well. And, and those experiences were the ones and the opportunities that I was able to grow on saying, that's not how I'm going to handle this, or that's not who it is that I want to be as an athletic trainer. And, and I'll leave here with two more, two more points. Early, early on in my career, uh, I was probably a freshman, maybe a sophomore. If I was, it was my first semester in undergrad uh, as a sophomore. One of my athletic training professors, we were having a chat. I said, what do I got to do? What, what would you say I just got to get right now to carry with me through my career. And, you know, it's very high level and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, you know what, if you have the confidence and the experience to save somebody's life, you can systematically work your way through whatever else you're faced with. And that's what you're going to learn. So don't take this first aid class or the CPR class. And this is even before AEDs were out, but don't take this lightly as just, okay, we got to do it to get through. If you have if you have the confidence and knowledge to do that, again, you'll work your way through, and you have time to ask questions. And that leads into my to my other point: ask questions. Another professor, again, early in my academic career, of all of the education that we've all had, we remember these things. And this was within the first two years. Professor said he was talking to the class. He said, "What I can tell you is this." And he was probably well over retirement age and should have been retired at this point. But he said, if you want to know the answer to something, go to the person or to the people that know. And it, it really just, it, it, it set with me because how often are we seeking answers or we think we know the answers and we don't. 
but the resources are out there. We just got to find them. So that would be certainly my take home on, on what really has, has driven me and uh, propelled me through this, this profession. Well, I'd really like to thank Mike and Chris and Boz for joining me today on the podcast. It's good hearing each of your voices as voices that were very much a big part of my life for for at least the first two years of that and Chris for a little bit longer than that. And I know all three of you played a big role in my development as a physician. I'm sure there were probably instances where you saved my butt a time or two during fellowship as well. Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and thank you to all the athletic trainers out there for doing what you do and the daily grind. We see you. We know you're working hard. And, you know, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen today as well. Truly appreciate all your five-star reviews and your feedback. Follow us on Twitter at Pete Sports Pod and check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicine.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.